working on the pandemic of sedition and falsely warned of coming violence from left-wing hit squads. He urged Trump supporters to buy ammunition in preparation for a post-election conflict. Caputo is the same Trump official who reportedly pressured other officials at the CDC to change or delay scientific reports on coronavirus to line up with Trump messaging. Among Democrats, calls are growing for Caputo to resign or be fired. Giving only four days notice, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio today delayed in-person classes at public schools for a second time. The city is struggling to identify enough staff willing to teach during the pandemic and announced this delay after teacher union leaders brought concerns to de Blasio yesterday. Only pre-K and students with particular learning needs will begin in-person classes as expected on Monday, September 21st. Elementary school students will begin in-person learning the following Tuesday, September 29th, while middle and high school students will return October 1st. Virtual lessons are already underway. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 72 degrees with light rain. In New York City, 74 degrees and partly cloudy. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Thanks for listening. And the time now is one minute past 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned. Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. Thank you again for tuning in to WBAI today. So I need to start with the local news of the day, the city news of the day, because frankly, it involves the nation's largest public school system. Parents, students, teachers, they're all, as one elected official official said, furious. What am I talking about? Just four days before public schools were set to begin their in-person learning, today, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that it's being delayed again for a big chunk of those students for the second time since uh, since we normally would have started schools this uh, this season. The mayor says more work has to be done. So as of Monday, instead, that's when in-person instruction was going to begin. Only 3,000, I'm sorry, kids in 3K, Pre-K and District 75 special education uh, classrooms are going to be open at that point. Everyone else, the large chunk of them, it's delayed for several weeks. The schools with kindergarten through either fifth or eighth grade follow on September 29th. And middle and high schools reopen on October 1st. Remember, school was supposed to open on September 10th. The return to in-person instruction is going to be phased in. And, and today, this afternoon, I talked with a few parents who I know, and let's just say the adjective furious doesn't even do their emotions justice. Quite a few expletives not suitable for radio were, were used. Uh, and again, virtual classes will still go on for those who are not able to be uh, taking in-person classroom classes at this point. Now, if you remember, if you listened to the show last week, 
Uh, you'll recall that I spoke with New York City Council member Mark Traeger. He lambasted the mayoral administration over the way it's handled uh, the reopening of schools this fall. And he brought up a series of problems he felt were just nowhere near being addressed. Uh, health uh, and safety, staff shortages, challenges over transportation, not enough nurses, uh, the, the blended learning approach, how this is going to impact uh, students who are experiencing homelessness, who are not able to get uh, sufficient Wi-Fi in either their shelters or the uh, or the hotels where they're being housed, or even their ability to find place to learn, classroom ventilation systems. I mean, there's so much, and parents have have been in incredibly concerned about the COVID testing protocols. Note that as of uh, recent reports also, there are new cases of coronavirus at 56 schools so far. That's the last I checked. That number may be up even higher. So there's been a lot of news today, including on, on the state labor figures, which I'll, I'll get to later. But first, I'd like to get to my first guest, Dr. Robert Blendon, the Richard L. Menschel Professor of Public Health, also Professor of Health Policy and Political Analysis Emeritus at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. There was a new poll that was out that looked into uh, the following, and it piqued my interest last week, and I wanted to have this on the show, so I'm glad he's on today. This poll looked at, in particular, how the pandemic has impacted households in several major cities across our country and how they're suffering financially, what it's doing to people's savings, how it's affecting childcare provision and healthcare, and much more. And I do want to point out, uh, before I get to my conversation with him, the poll was presented jointly by Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, along with NPR and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Dr. Blendon, welcome to WBAI. How can I start to be helpful to you? Hi, ah, yes. Welcome. Uh, so uh, let me just give some background very quickly, uh, uh, your audience. Uh, our group has been involved in surveying uh, communities that have had natural disasters many times. And what you find is that everybody you interview has a problem, but a small share of people have very serious problems that make it hard for them, their lives to be viable. So this poll is really focused on uh, asking people who had really serious problems to talk about them. The findings for us were a surprise. Everybody thinks you're going to find what it is. That is that if you listen to the national media uh, in recent months, we have spent billions, if not trillions, on providing aid uh, to families who are really at high risk uh, for the virus, uh, for having to be quarantined. Uh, not only federal government, state government, cities, charities. And so we expected that we would identify a small number of people who were in real trouble. And what really surprised us is how large the number was of people who said to us, we have serious financial problems. And relating to your last aspect, we're having serious problems making uh, this at-home education work for our children. And so uh, this was uh, a, a, a surprise to us. Uh, likewise, uh, 
we survey the four largest cities, and the problems uh, are more serious in the largest cities than the country as as a whole. And New York uh, was one of those uh, four. And then I'm sure your listeners hear this uh, all the time. There are these public service announcements. We are all in this together. And our survey found out that is not the case. It turns out that the people who are having the most serious problems keeping their lives together and their households together are members of minority communities, black, Latino, Native American, uh, who also have very high death rates here. Secondly, if you earn less than $100,000, you're in a different class. And the lower the income, the more all these problems uh, are showing up. And thirdly, to a surprise to us, because if you listen to the national news, if you lost your job and your wages were cut back, you're eligible to receive all this aid to put a uh, cushion under you financially for it. And we found just people who had lost their jobs and wages who were really incredibly suffering. So uh, let me just talk a little bit about uh, uh, what we mean. And so uh, in, in New York, it was um, uh, basically over half of New York households said they were having serious financial problems since uh, the COVID outbreak. And we interviewed in July and August. But the, the simplest thing to understand is, and it's much higher among the groups I mentioned, a, a third of New Yorkers basically just said, my savings are gone. I have no savings, which means next week, if there's some problem, some unexpected thing, they have no savings uh, that are left. Uh, and though obviously there are problems with food, uh, the largest numbers show up. Uh, around unable to keep up payments on credit cards, loans, mortgage, rent, and, and, and utilities. I'm glad you said that about rent because that is a big issue here that's under discussion because of the moratorium that uh, expires in early October. Yes, absolutely. And so, uh, and then you say, well, look, times are tough. You use your savings. So we start out, we have a third of New Yorkers that just say it's gone. Uh, and then these are, are the problems. And then secondary, there's food and paying for medical care. But the big ones are I can't keep up with the debt, uh, the debt uh, on uh, credit cards, loans, uh, rent, mortgage, utilities, and I, I, I am really right. So these numbers are, are much uh, larger. And then for a variety of reasons, one in five New Yorkers and again, we were only interested if you had a serious problem. We all have getting medical care in this situation is very hard. So we only interviewed people if you said you had a serious medical problem. And one in five households who did couldn't get care they needed. And then we asked, you know, normally we say, okay, look, it's something you needed, but it's not that essential. You get it four months later. And essentially, uh, almost six in ten New Yorkers who needed the care when they were seriously ill uh, said they had negative health consequences because they couldn't get the care. So for a subgroup of New Yorkers who could not get care, they had a, and so these are likely to be, as you must have covered, hospitals and physicians who are having trouble having COVID patients and non-COVID patients. But these people are likely to be people who are getting cancer treatment, 
uh, and uh, other heart disease, uh, diabetes, uh, where the absence of treatment, and they didn't want to bring them in, uh, uh, did not just hold off, we'll just wait a few months, uh, caused uh, serious problems uh, uh, for those. Uh, on the issue that you were talking about, something that we really have gotten to worry about, uh, essentially um, a third of New York households with children said they were having serious problems keeping their children's education going at home. And so uh, it, it seems very easy to just tell people, well, you're going to run a structured class, which will do online at home, but for many families, and if you're lower income, if you remember minority communities, running a classroom out of your house, you may have other relatives lost their jobs living with you, uh, or very hard. Uh, and, and, what's, and what's so important about that, too, I agree with you, is that for many families who might be living even in a cramped space with multiple children who need to re, uh, learn remotely at the same time, there's that struggle. And also those uh, who are ex- experiencing homeless in, homelessness in the city. Abs- oh, uh, a- 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 absolutely. Uh, the dilemma you have uh, when sort of the bulk of New Yorkers have a problem which they can't cope with, people who are incredibly vulnerable are twice as vulnerable. And the homeless would just fall fall into that. Uh, they have a wage problem, they have a medical problem, they have a home problem, they have a debt and financing problem. So all those things would fall in. But we found something else that's uh, really uh, important for your listeners, and if we could see them, they'd be shaking their heads. So we found that um, uh, 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 one in four New York families were having a problem with their internet connectivity, and it was higher among families with children. So we really have to just step back and see what that means is. They're telling you your child is going to fall behind. The American dream is I have to keep my child's education up. That's the next chance for it. And they're in a four-hour online math thing, and they're reporting that the Internet goes down over and over again. Well, you can't put the child back in the Internet if they've missed 20 minutes of the class. And this issue of Internet connectivity, and if you listen to public officials, because they don't understand this, they just said, we sent out 8,000 iPads. That's the problem is solved. In reality, there is a technology problem going on for some number of families that they lose their connections. And if you're going to try to educate children in this very difficult environment at home, you can't have the classes go down. Uh, and and, and this, it's so, a very good point. I think of also a longstanding practice uh, within homeless shelters here in New York City that they have not had Wi-Fi or even good cell reception or any cell reception because the perception is they want, don't want people to perceive that these are places they can stay for a while. Yeah, so uh, that is even worse. I mean, the uh, pictures you see of people sitting outside Burger King so they can use their Wi-Fi's. Uh, for that, but this is really critical if I'm trying to educate children at home as a substitute for in-class uh, 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 experience. And uh, the purpose of this is to really raise issues for people in the press and others. The, the first is 
uh, we and others are under impression that we spend a lot of money to cushion people who are vulnerable, including thinking special grants uh, to help people uh, with the homeless. And we don't know the answer for why this isn't working. But you have a very large share of people who did not receive a life vest to get through this period financially. They really are uh, uh, very, very vulnerable. Uh, and we don't exactly know why. But the one thing we know without getting in the politics of this, if Washington ended all this support, uh, which they're close to doing, it cannot be possible this situation wouldn't be worse if we did this a month from now. Uh, so these people have no resources to fall back on. And the second thing is, uh, because the virus has been much more difficult to control than expected, if parents are going to try to have to educate their kids uh, at home, we have to have more support uh, uh, for that. Uh, people have to be able to call or get help uh, when they're not able to connect and some sort of structure because for young people all the research shows that if you start lagging behind it's very hard uh, when this is over for you to catch up with uh, uh, other young people so th this is absolutely uh, uh, critical you will focus uh, on the homeless which is absolutely risk for everything from infections uh, uh, to financial incredible difficulties. But the important thing is there are also other groups in New York, not as severe, but are really hurting, and that's a share of the minority community, and it's people more modest incomes who are just hanging on here. And to the surprise of my colleagues, if you lost your job, we really thought that you got some protection till this is over. and. Uh, they are reporting to us unbelievably just hanging on in terms of their financial situation. So that's and what we take away here. Uh, we are not all in this together, and unless there's some intervention, it's going to be hard for many households in New York to make this through this period uh, with the households holding together. And you raised some very good points. I've got just about a minute or two left. Now, if I read it correctly, when I was reading some of the material, this is just the first of several reports that the survey is going to generate. If that's accurate, can you talk about what's on the horizon? Yes. So uh, one of the uh, things you want to be careful of, that you just don't overwhelm people with all this. So we did the first report on life in the major uh, biggest cities. And then the second one is focused on minority communities who are dying at a higher rate, higher infection, and have, have lower incomes. Uh, the next one is going to be, let's take a look at the picture of a nation as a whole, but not focus specifically on groups. And then we're going to have one on rural America. And there are issues there that are different than the rest of the country. And the last is going to be where you were when I came on. We're going to be focusing on families with children and as many issues as possible that are facing households trying to manage their children. So that's why we spread it out so people interested in each of the issues can actually talk about them in a more manageable way. 
And, and I'm glad you laid it out that way because this report is not very long. I think it was about 45 pages. It's worth yeah. looking at. If people or if our listeners want to learn more and they want to find this report, uh, where should they go? Uh, so I will have my colleagues instantly send you a link that you can tell them where <laughs> they can get it from. I will put that up on our Facebook page. I also had typed it in here just to have it ready in case we needed it. Uh, I, I was reading it on the harvard.edu website, so I saw hsph.harvard.edu. Yeah, so I've got there, the link already. Sure you've got too. a link that any, you know, like four places they can go, and you have a link that people yeah. can get it. <laughs> I found it in multiple places, and that's what's so wonderful is it's easy to find when you search for this, but I'll make sure I put it up on our Facebook page. Dr. Robert Blendon, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. And thank you, and the point is to try to do something here to help. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a great day. You have been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM. Also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with Dr. Robert Blendon, the Richard Menchel Professor of Public Health and also Professor of Health uh, Policy and Political Analysis Emeritus at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health about the first of a series of reports that really are disturbing when you see how widespread this pandemic has affected every sector uh, we didn't get into a lot of other areas. Uh, there wasn't the time to, uh, in terms of even the percentage of people who were in healthcare, the healthcare sector itself that have been impacted. You, it's really worth looking at this. And so, uh, if you, uh, after the show, if you go to the driving forces, uh, Facebook page, I will put up that link for you all. So tweet it from our forces driving, uh, Twitter handle so you can find this report, this first one, because it's, in, it's incredibly important to look at and it is disturbing. So, uh, I mentioned at the outset of the show that there were some labor statistics out today. It's something that I uh, try to bring you each week. It just shows that the pandemic is still wreaking havoc on our economy, even as uh, new claims for state employment insurance dropped last week. Uh, layoffs continue to come at an extraordinary, extraordinarily high level by historic standards. Some 860,000 Americans lost their jobs and filed for unemployment insurance last week across the country. And it isn't a pretty picture, particularly for those who would be relying on the now expired $600 weekly federal supplement. And if you're following what's going on in Washington, D.C. today, there's still, <clears throat> excuse me, there still is not much progress on that. So today's big news, started the show with it, the state of our schools and what is going on with them. And we, uh, I am so happy to have back on the show. He's been on uh, twice already, and this is an issue he really cares about. New York City Council member Justin Brannon, who represents the 43rd Council District, which includes Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Bensonhurst, and Bath Beach. He issued a very strong statement today in response to the mayor's announcement about this new delay. Councilman, welcome back to WBAI. Oh, right on. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So you never mince words. Tell our listeners your reaction to the mayor's announcement today. I did not want to read your statement. I want to leave it to you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I mean, look, I, I believe, uh, I think a lot of us believe that today's decision was certainly the right one. Um, but that said, parents and students and teachers have every right to be furious because uh, today's decision is one that could have and should have uh, been made months ago. Um, I'm, I'm particularly furious because we've been sounding the alarm on this 
all summer. Um, and again, that goes for elected officials, parents, students, the teachers union, the principals union. We've all been very, very clear uh, that we needed a real plan and we needed it communicated early to all of the stakeholders uh, impacted here. Um, and I think the mayor has been driving everyone crazy because he seems to be governing in fits and starts while he's uh, obsessed with the the actual first day of school, which is really just an arbitrary self-imposed deadline in the first place. Um, you know, we all know that school, the new school year starts sometime around this time in September. So we certainly weren't caught off guard or we weren't caught by surprise. Um, and, and the decisions that are being made here um, could have been made a long time ago and could have really prevented a, a whole lot of confusion, a whole lot of heartache, um, and a whole lot of hardship for uh, especially working parents um, and, and our teachers. So, um, again, I think it was the right decision today, but there's no reason why this decision could have been made from day one. So why do you think this is happening? Is he being advised improperly? Is it, uh, you know, is it that he doesn't want to take direction when we hear the governor say or the uh the head of uh, the uh, state school system um, uh, uh, who made a comment about that things are just don't seem to be ready yet. You know, why do you think, you know, the, this delay has happened? I mean, look, I think I think this look, I, I think even the harshest critics uh, of the DOE, and I've certainly been one of them, I think we can all admit that these are unprecedented times and, and, and safely reopening the country's largest public school system is an enormous task. No one is denying that. Um, I think for myriad reasons, remote learning is not ideal, but I think if we're not ready and we're not, then we need to delay and we need to go 100% remote until we are. Um, I think, you know, look, I think the mayor is certainly hoping for the best, which is fine, but we also need to be realistic here that we're still in the throes of a global pandemic. There's no vaccine anywhere on the horizon. And, and there's basic, if you want to reopen schools, there's basic but, but very critical health and safety measures that need to be in place because we can't send anyone knowingly into to harm's way. Um, so I, I don't know if, if, his, if his hope and, and his optimism and his glass, his glass half full outlook is blinding him from the reality of the situation. Um, but, but it certainly seems like it, um, you know, and I think that's what's driving everybody crazy because these decisions get made and um, everyone is like, well, yeah, they should have done this a long time ago. Do you think we're just given that there's been several dozen uh, cases, uh, positive cases of coronavirus in schools just in the last few days? I, I noted that there were 56 that were reported. Um, do you think we're just going to get to that point sometime in the next week or two where they say, you know what, we're just going to stay remote learning for the rest of this, even until the, the end of the year? It's certainly possible, you know, um, and, and I think that's why. What was so frustrating when two weeks ago when we hit pause the first time, you know, we, we hit pause for like 11 or 12 days, which what, what can get done in 11 and 12 days? You know, nothing. Um, so I think even this pause, some people are sort of looking at it, you know, with one eye open. Um, you know, I think the bottom line is that we need a plan that first and foremost uh, prioritizes public health and safety. But you have to take into consideration the needs of working parents, uh, especially the parents of young learners, of L's, uh, students with disabilities, students in temporary housing. And then you've got to talk about the children of teachers, the children of essential workers, 
um, and and those with, with with home situations that make remote learning uh, difficult or not possible. I mean, remote learning is not ideal. No one says that it is, you know. Um, but look, I think there's one silver lining here is that because of member advocacy from the UFT um, and, and members from the UFT with, with eyes and ears on the ground, the mayor is now uh, pledging to invest more uh, in education where he's promising to hire uh, some 2,600 additional teachers for early ed and D75 and, and K-5 to and K-8. K to so hopefully they're, they're, they're coming to terms with the enormity of this situation. Um, and look, everyone wants to get this done right. You know, no one is rooting for this to fail, but I think we owe the parents and the teachers um, to be realistic, you know, and, and, to, and to go into this eyes wide open. I think that's not much to ask for. So in just uh, the next uh, two or three minutes, you know, another issue I do want to discuss with you is something that you have expressed concern about as well, uh, which is the impact of the, uh, the lockdown and the coronavirus on many of our businesses in the city. And when it comes to indoor dining, uh, there's been developments where we're supposed to start resuming indoor dining soon. But you you and uh, your uh colleague in government, Senator Andrew Gennardis, uh, who's been on the show before, you know, have urged the governor to prioritize issuing guidance on indoor dining. Um, what's the scenario now? Are, are all the issues that you've raised been addressed so far? What do you want to see before we go to indoor dining? Well, I, I think you know, look. I, I think there's a lot of stuff here that's been that's been arbitrary, and and I'm the first one to admit that um, we're we're living through an unprecedented time. There's no playbook for what we're dealing with right now, and it's not like you or I can say, well, the last time there was a global pandemic, things were normal by now. You know, we have nothing to compare this to, and I think it's important to to remember that um, and to not be in denial about that. That said. Um, I think you remember when you were a kid and your parents might say, you know, uh, the answer is no, because I said so. Well, that might work for your parents, but it doesn't work for government. And I think that too many people feel um, that there's a lot of arbitrary um, guidelines out there. And, and there's a lot of we're getting we're getting rules and not reasons. And I'm a fan of reasons and not rules. And I think that when you see that New York City has met and sustained and exceeded all the public health metrics that have allowed restaurants throughout the rest of the state to reopen at, at, at limited capacity. Meanwhile, there was no timeline and no plan for a safe opening in the five boroughs. It's just indefensible. The fact that you and I could go have dinner tonight inside in Westchester, but not across the street in the Bronx, or, or that I can go have breakfast tomorrow morning in, in a diner in Long Island, but not across the street at a diner in Queens, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, and, and that's it. I mean, I think, look, I think restaurant owners especially are a, hard, a hale and hearty bunch and they, they roll with the punches and they're used to being beaten down by the city and the state, and that's something else that we need to address. But they need to prepare. They need to understand what the guidelines are going to be. They, the workers need to know what's happening. And frankly, New Yorkers and people that like to dine out, they have to understand how the virus is going to be kept under control once indoor dining returns. So, you know, you've got gyms and malls and museums and bowling alleys and casinos. All these industries had their light at the end of the tunnel. All we were asking for was give restaurants in the five boroughs a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think we were able to do that. And if the numbers stay low, then I think at the end of the month when we can resume uh, indoor dining at limited capacity, uh, you're going to see that, that we, can, we can get this right. We
And did we just lose the councilman? All right. Look like I got to try again. I'll try okay. to him back. Oh, no, don't worry. And don't worry. Uh, you know, I was going to thank the councilman because that was our last question anyway. I'll text him afterwards uh, to let him know that we just lost him at the last. This happens occasionally, folks, but we're in a new tech world here and we're making it happen as best as possible. So I want to thank Councilman Justin Brannon. Uh, for appearing on the show at last minute's notice, but I knew this was, these were two issues that were very important to him. Uh, he and Mark Traeger, his council colleague, have issued very strong statements today uh, as a result of the mayor's announcement. We will, this is a topic that I hear about from my colleagues and friends uh, about all the challenges of reopening schools. So I'm going to continue this discussion and uh, and the good news is that uh, I, as much as I'm preempted next week, I won't be on next Thursday. When uh, I resume uh, in early October, I'm going to start taking calls again, which is something I've wanted to do because uh, as we get close to Election Day, I think I heard on the radio we're 47 days, 45, 47 days from Election Day now. I want to hear what you have to say about both candidates, something that uh, I've not been able to have an opportunity to engage with our listeners in a lot while, and I really miss that engagement. So in a few moments, we're going to get uh, to the next guest, but I just want to also uh, remind you that you are listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM, and we're also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with New York City Council member Justin Brannon about the mayor's announcement today about the next delay of uh, in-person instruction for a big chunk of our uh, 1 million school students. So with that, I want to get to uh, my next guest, uh, particularly today. It's such a good day to have her on because uh, she is someone who really has her finger on the pulse of politics and government in New York City and state. And I'm talking about Erin Durkin, who's a reporter at Politico New York. Now, you may recognize her name. She's been covering the city for some time, and she previously worked with the New York Daily News uh, she's reported for a number of outlets. You could have uh, read her writing in The Guardian, Yahoo, HuffPost, and many more. So today, she one of the stories, or she two stories that she had reported on uh, was about the latest development, uh, what's going on with our schools, but also about the mayor's announcement uh, that he is going to have furloughs of a number of his staff. I think the number was about 500 between October and early next year. So, Erin, welcome to WBAI. Thanks for having me. So I gave a brief introduction of you before I get to the topics at hand. Uh, uh, please give our listeners a fuller description of your career and your work. Tell them a little more about you. Yeah, that's right. You know, you covered it pretty well. I'm a reporter at Politico New York, where I cover New York City politics and government. So obviously in recent months, uh, that has meant uh, a large focus on the city's handling of the pandemic and all of the ramifications from education to budget to everything else that have come out of that. Um, I'm also the co-author of the New York Playbook uh, newsletter, which um, is a place you can sign up if you want a little morning digest of all the news you need to know for the day. Which is a very good resource. So at the end of the uh, end of the segment, I'm going to ask you to just say where people can go uh, so they can write it down at that point. Gives them time to get a pen and paper now uh, to get the New York Playbook. So um, I mentioned the two stories uh, that you've reported on uh, today, but I, I want to just start with the big story for many people, including some of my colleagues in my full time job who were just furious today about this announcement again about another delayed uh, reopening of schools for a big chunk of students. 
talk a little, tell our listeners a little about what happened because some of the animosity seemed to be that the mayor really declined to apologize uh, for this last minute action only a few days before school was to resume. Go walk us through what happened today. Yeah, that's right. So school was supposed to start on Monday, September 21st was going to be the first day of school for in-person classes. Um, now, this first day of school had already been delayed once. It was supposed to be September 10th, and the mayor, under a lot of pressure from the teachers' union and others, agreed to push it back to the 21st. And he said as soon as uh, just a couple of days ago, of course it's going to open on the 21st. It's definitely going to happen. We're prepared. We're ready to go. Today, he said, no, that's not going to happen. There's going to be another delay. Uh, Monday, the only classes that will open as a small minority is pre-K, as well as uh, District 75 schools, which serve special education students uh, in 3K, which are classes for three-year-olds. Um, and so the bulk of, of students, elementary school and middle school and high school students, won't be going back until either uh, September uh, 29th or October 1st. Um, and so, yeah, the mayor was kind of asked, why would you make this announcement at the last minute um, when you knew that uh, there were all of these problems, the number one problem being a staffing shortage that caused him to actually make the decision to delay the reopening of schools, but that has been known for weeks. So why is he making this decision at the last minute when parents, you know, made their plans? People have jobs. People need somewhere to send their kids, and they've planned around the assumption that that school is going to start um, on Monday. And he was asked if he would apologize, and he declined to do so. Um, in fact, he said, you know, oh, most of our parents are from the outer boroughs, and most of them are working class or lower income people, and therefore they understand the realities of life, and they know that things don't go always go according to plan and they're more pragmatic than you might think. Um, so some people perceive that comment as being condescending of saying that, you know, parents who are working class and outer borough folks essentially ought to have lower expectations. So do you think part of this, uh, this action, this announcement today is rooted in that the, and I may be, I may be stretching here, but that the uh, Department of Education has just lost several key staffers recently, that there's a lot of disorganization going on over there now, and that they're behind the eight ball. Is that it? Or do you think really it's just longer term that they did not start planning as early as they should have? Well, I mean, the loss of several key staffers certainly didn't help. Um, you know, there is one by the name of Allison Hirsch, who was a high-ranking aide to de Blasio, who actually left in June um, in large part because she objected to the mayor's handling of uh, policing and the policing of protests um, and was named to essentially be the point person on the school reopening, was there for only a few months, and then left um, last week. Um, and there have also been departures of several other high-ranking people, including Ursulina Ramirez. Um, I can't say that that is what caused the problem, but it, it, it's perhaps, you know, both a symptom and a cause of the problem. It seems like there's a lot of chaos going on there, and no one really has a firm, you know, plan um, for how all of this is supposed to, is supposed to work. So I was following your Twitter thread. That was the phrase I only learned in the last year, and I know I should have known that before. But I was following your Twitter thread 
uh, today. And one of the things that jumped out at me was one of your comments that you had uh, that you had tweeted. Listening to the mayor's comments again, the strong implication is that parents of color, working class, and outer borough parents have lower expectations of their government across the board. Can you talk a little about what he said? What you know? What happened? Yeah, sure. Um, essentially what he said, and I'm trying to find the exact comment so I can just give it to you verbatim, mm-hmm. because he said, um, I think our parents, they're a lot more pragmatic than you might imagine. New York City public school parents understand we're dealing with an incredibly difficult situation, a really imperfect situation. They understand the real life of the city. For the parents of New York City public schools, they are overwhelmingly working-class people and lower-income people and certainly some middle-class people as well. They are overwhelmingly outer borough residents. They are people who understand the realities of life, and they're not shocked when something this difficult has to be adjusted from time to time. Um, So, you know, listeners can interpret that on their own, but it certainly seems to be the implication that, you know, folks who live in the outer boroughs, folks who are working class or lower income, never expected that this was going to go right to begin with. Um, so, and, you know, I've certainly heard a lot of disappointment from, from parents really across the board on this um, because they were hoping for better. You know, what are you and your colleagues hearing, though, about you know, the frequency of teachers and staff testing positive. I asked Justin Brannon uh, a question about this, too, in that are we just getting to, you know, we delaying the inevitable that they're just going to have to have full uh, remote lessons this this semester or, I mean, through the end of the year? What You know, we've seen a surge already on college campuses, and I know that that can be largely different because of, you know, of housing as well. But what are you hearing about, you know, could we just get to that point where they say, you know what, we're just not going to be able to do this 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 calendar year? It's certainly not off the table. Um, the city has said that if the citywide infection rate goes above 3%, um, on a 70 rolling average, they would close the schools um, and go to all remote education. You know, as far as cases within the schools, um, Earlier this week, the number reported was uh, 55 among just teachers and staffers who actually have returned to their buildings. Um, it, you know, and the positive test rate was quite low. It was lower than the citywide rate. Uh, but on the other hand, um, a lot of teachers felt that the city was not responding quickly enough when there was a case reported in a particular school as far as contacting people who may have been in contact with the with the positive person and getting them to quarantine and getting them not to come to school the next day. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a recognition and the mayor has acknowledged that it's inevitable that there are going to be cases among students. You know, we have about 1.1 million students. Even if it's a very small proportion, you're still talking about hundreds uh, of potentially thousands of, of, of cases, even if it's a very small, um, even just a very small percentage. Um, and so, you know, the, ha- the, the way the city actually handles that when there is a case in the school, you know, it's going to be something that will be put to the test. They have rules on what they're supposed to do, which is, you know, they'll close a classroom if there's one case and only if there are two cases that are not linked to each other, they will close an entire school building. But the question is, you know, how well do those protocols work, number one? And the other issue is, even if everything's handled correctly, if you're a parent or a student and you hear, oh, there's a positive case in my child's school, 
you're going to be alarmed. It's natural that you're going to be fearful um, when you hear that, even in the best of circumstances, if everything was handled correctly. So final question on education. Remote learning began this week and, you know, it depends. As my listeners know, I rip out a lot of articles over the course of the day. So I have a few here uh, that didn't paint the rosiest picture of how this took place yesterday. And I, I think I'd seen one of your tweets as well about what happened in Bay Ridge and a, a student who's obviously at home getting schooled right now. I'm putting up some naked pictures during his class. But overall, how did remote learning go so far? What have you heard? Yeah, so if I understand correctly, um, the remote learning yesterday was more of just an orientation. And so, um, you know, it didn't really test the real instructional quality of, of, of the remote learning. And, of course, all the information that principals and teachers were giving out yesterday is now completely moot because everything has changed. Um, yeah. One of the real issues with the remote learning is just this week the city – um, and there's a lot of jargon here, but um, the city announced that students who are at home doing remote learning on the days when they're not going to school will not necessarily be getting uh, live instruction, live classes from a teacher that they're viewing online. Um, and previously, they had promised that they would be getting those classes. Um, but now, because of the same staffing shortage, they're saying, no, you, you may just sort of have, you know, pat assignments that are you know, in your queue that you have to do when you're at home days, you won't necessarily be getting live instruction because there aren't enough teachers. Um, at the same time, um, another issue that's come up is even when students are physically in school, and this was reported uh, last night by the city and Chalkbeat, um, they might only be taking online classes. In certain schools, they're saying, even if you come to school, your teacher in the school is not going to be teaching you. You're just going to be taking online classes like everyone else who's at home. And so, you know, that sort of raises the question of what, what is the point of pulling off this very elaborate, you know, dance and, and all of these safety procedures if you're still just going to be taking online classes in the end anyway. So I want to get to, in just a few moments, how the mayoral administration has handled the issue of homelessness. But before I do that, you did report on something else that I thought our listeners would find interesting. Amid the uh, uh, the budgetary challenges that the mayor is facing, he made an announcement yesterday about furloughing a number of his employees. Can you just talk a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the mayor said that all of the employees of the mayor's office, that's a little under 500 people, will have to take a one-week unpaid furlough. That includes the mayor himself, so he will be furloughed, um, although he said he's going to work unpaid during that time. Um, and, you know, the, I, he said that would raise about, uh, that would save about a million dollars, uh, which is not a lot of money in the scheme of things. Um, the city's down $9 billion in revenue. Um, but, you know, he seems to be trying to send a message that he's serious about uh, doing some cutbacks while he is attempting to get permission from Albany to borrow uh, several billion dollars um, that he needs to avert uh, mass layoffs he has threatened to city employees. So the mayor's record recently on homelessness, uh, he seems to be getting uh, – hit on, you know, from both sides of the aisle, like he can't seem to do anything right uh, when it comes to uh, addressing the increased need for, uh, to house people. And it, and frankly, it's going to get worse uh, when 
uh, you know, when the eviction moratoria end, uh, how has the mayor handled this? I mean, what are still the overriding concerns? Well, you know, there's the broader issue of homelessness um, that has been a crisis for a while. And then there's the way that's played out during the pandemic. Um, now, during the pandemic, actually, the homeless shelter population has decreased. And people think that's because of this eviction moratorium, which, as you mentioned, is going to yeah. expire. And there are a lot of predictions that when that happens, you'll see a really big surge in homelessness. But for the time being, it's actually a smaller shelter population they're dealing with. But it's obviously a problem from a public health perspective because, you know, your traditional homeless shelter is dorms, is people kind of on top of each other, and, you know, it's a natural environment for the spread of COVID-19. Um, and so the mayor, and this is never an idea that he was very fond of, but he was kind of pressured into doing it, um, agreed to move many people who are living in traditional homeless shelters into hotel rooms. Um, and so you had homeless homeless men and, and women living in hotels around the city. Um, and, and the most recent controversy has uh, centered around a hotel in the Upper West Side called Lucerne, um, where you had a few hundred homeless men living, and, and that generated a whole lot of complaints from folks in the neighborhood who said, you know, there were quality of life problems stemming from that. Uh, de Blasio actually agreed to move these men out of, of the homeless shelter and then that, I'm sorry, of the hotel um, and that generated a huge controversy of its own, a big backlash, and then he reversed his position and said, okay, we're not going to move them out for the time being. So that sort of uh, remains in limbo right now. So I've got just about two or so minutes left. And, you know, what I've talked about starting before the pandemic hit was just, uh, and I just would have, could can't imagine what it would be like if I were covering politics over this next year, if there weren't a pandemic, when you could have as many as five, 500 candidates running for city council and mayor and, you know, and city and borough wide positions and some citywide positions. So this next year is going to be very busy for you and your team. Um, you know, if the elections were held today, you know, it would be clear which issues would dominate. But as you kind of look ahead, how do you see the candidates, particularly those who are aiming to become mayor, define themselves as the strongest to lead their districts or the city? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the big question. And obviously, everything has changed because of the pandemic. There's the question of how you're going to handle the health situation itself. But also every issue we typically talk about in our politics, right? You and I just talked about homelessness. We just talked about schools. We just talked about the budget. Every single one of those issues is completely turned upside down because of because of the pandemic. So, you know, the question of what voters will be looking for, are they still basically going to be looking for the same kind of thing they would have been looking for before? Or is it going to change, you know, their perception of what a good mayoral candidate would be? Will they want someone who's a more of a manager and more of, you know, focused on the nuts and bolts of city services? Or will they want someone who's a real uh, reformer? You know, we also had this round of, of, of police uh, protests. So will they be looking for someone who's really going to change to the core the way things are done? Um, and, and, and that'll really be the question. And I, I, I can't say I know the answer, but that, you know, those will be the questions that kind of define the campaign going forward. So final question before I ask you to uh, just say where people can go to sign up for New York Playbook and more. But the final question, do you hope 
Do you hope or do you ever think there will come a time when the mayor and the governor of our state will get along? This mayor and this governor? I, no. I, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I what is it? The leopard doesn't change his spots. They've had plenty of time to uh, learn to get along and they haven't done it. And obviously we're now in a crisis situation and the crisis has not been enough to cause them to get along. They've been on opposite pages on several issues in terms of how to respond to the pandemic. Uh, in fact, there was a great story recently showing how Cuomo's uh, determination to control the response and not sort of cede any territory to de Blasio led to significant delays uh, in, you know, the shutdown that may have cost uh, many lives. So if that wasn't enough to do it, I don't think anything will be. So, Aaron, where can people go to learn more about your work and also to be able to sign up to get New York Playbook? Yeah, absolutely. So if, if you go to politico.com slash newsletters slash New York Playbook, you can sign up right there. Just put in your email. Um, you know, if you don't remember the URL, you can also just Google New York Playbook and it'll, it'll come right up. Aaron Durkin, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. I really appreciate you having me on. So you've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM's Driving Forces, and we're also always streaming at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and as I get to wrap up, uh, get to wrap up in just a few moments, I just want to thank you again for tuning into WBAI and for being part of our community. Uh, again, I really am excited that I will soon be able to take listener calls once again because I have missed that. Uh, if you are a listener, in the name of this show, and you have just a moment or two, and you're willing to show your love for us, please donate. Please just help support our fund drive. And there are a few ways you can easily do that. I'm what's called a BAI buddy. I preach this all the time. That means I just gave a contribution every single month, goes right on my credit card. And you can give any amount of 10, 15, most people give about 15, 20 or more, or you even could just give a one-time contribution. There's a few ways you, you can do that. Here's the website. Go to give to WBAI.org. And that's the number two in there. Give to WBAI.org. We also have a phone number, our call center. Call 516-620-3602. 516-620-3602. Say you want to become a BAI buddy. Set it up that way for me and do it in the name of the show. That would be fantastic. But also, I, I don't want to forget this. Wear your mask. This is the first week where you could get fined. We talked with the uh, head of the MTA about this last week. You could get a $50 fine for not wearing your mask on public transportation. And I told him at the time that I was about to do my first subway ride. I've done, I think, five now since then having to go to appointments. And I have to say every single person on that subway train, on those subway trains, were wearing their masks. I want to thank my guests today. Uh, 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 the um, Let's see, Aaron Durkin of Politico, uh, who joined me just a few moments ago to talk about politics, but also I'd like to thank Robert Blendon of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm going to be back on Sunday, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. with City Watch, because a new survey came out. You may have seen this was a top trending topic on Twitter yesterday, why the Holocaust was trending. A new survey had some very, very disturbing news about what Gen Z and millennials know about the Holocaust. And you're not going to believe what those who live here in New York State 
said. It's incredibly disturbing about that. So joining me will be Matthew Bronfman from the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, also known as the Claims Conference. And also Sarah Maslin Neer, a reporter whose byline you might know of from the New York Times. I just finished her book, Horse Crazy, where she talks not just about her love of horses, but about their presence in New York City. And then wrapping up the show is someone you may have heard of, Rob Walsh, former commissioner of the New York City Department of Small Business Services, to talk about the Urban Fellows Program and about what it's going to take for small businesses to outlive this pandemic. I want to also thank Reggie Johnson for making this show happen. Thank you so much. Have a great day and stay tuned for the news. September 17th at 10 p.m. on Folk Radio, we take another deep dive into Harry Smith's anthology of American folk music, an iconic collection of 84 songs which were recorded in the late 20s and early 30s, largely forgotten long before they were re-released by Folkways Records in 1952 on the new LP format. And that introduced new generations to them and played a key role in launching the folk music revival of the 50s and 60s. On Folk Radio, this Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight on WBAI and streaming at WBAI.org. As a result of that war against the working class by the corporate elite, what we have seen is the decimation of working families all across this country while the wealthiest people and largest corporations have done phenomenally well. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. And what he says is true as well for a little radio station like WBAI, which speaks truth to power. Other public radio stations are funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They're funded by corporate sponsors. WBAI isn't like that at all. And you know that. You know that we depend on you, our listeners, for our funding. But it's not going so well. Our station manager, Bertolt Reimer, says that as WBAI ends its fiscal year 2020, we are again facing the same situation that gave the Coopsters back in the fall an excuse to shut down WBAI. We planned on raising $25,000 per week every week with a new system which did not preempt all programming for fund drives, but only some programs on certain hours alternating each day of the week. But this is not working out very well. We need to raise $50,000 by Sunday, $8,000 per day, and we need you and your support. Please call. Please help us. 516-620-3602. Any amount is well appreciated. Any amount, $5 a week, $5 a month, $50 a year, 
$25 for a year subscription, $35 for a subscription to WBAI, making you a voting member, giving you a WBAI face mask in white or black, a cotton face mask with the saying, keep free speech radio alive, WBAI on it. Any of these ways or a large contribution, a matching fund would be most helpful. We would appreciate you doing this so much. And we do appreciate our past donors, people who have been giving to WBAI. Remember, unlike other public radio stations, we are totally listener-sponsored, and we need your help. 516-620-3602 is the number to call. We'd like to see phones lighting up right now. 516-620-3602. There are many shows on the air which are your favorite shows. You've told us. I'm Linda Perry, program director here at WBAI. You've told us that you love certain shows on WBAI and some of the new shows that we have, some of the new programs over WBAI, but we need your support. We need to be able to continue broadcasting in these troubled times. Many people have told us that you listen to WBAI and your parents listen to WBAI and your grandparents listen to WBAI. We want your children to be able to listen to a progressive voice in the darkness of media today. So please give us a chance, give us support. We are on an upswing 